I greet you in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Lord. And on this uh, beautiful Advent Sunday, our scripture lesson for the morning is the most famous parable Jesus ever told. The parable of the prodigal son. Think about it. The two most famous parables of Jesus, prodigal son and the good Samaritan, are found only in Luke's gospel, none of the other gospels. How much poorer we would be if Luke, the great physician, the companion of St. Paul, had not written his gospel. So today we focus on really his greatest, Jesus' greatest parable. Luke 15, I'll begin reading verse 11. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they begin to celebrate. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and let us pray. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken. Give us your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> The famous author, Ernest Hemingway, in one of his novels, told a heartwarming homecoming story. Uh, 
It was about a father and his son who lived in Madrid, Spain. Uh, the son's name was Paco, which is a very common name in Spain, sort of like Paul in America. This father and his teenage son, Paco, had problems with each other. There was a lot of friction. Paco felt that the rules of the house were too strict. And so the friction continued and grew. And finally, one day, there was an explosion. Paco shouted at his father, I hate this house and I hate you. I'm leaving and won't be back. And the father, who was aggravated by this outburst, responded, well, if that's the way you feel, get your stuff and get out. Good riddance. So Paco got his stuff and left. The father thought to himself, oh, it'll do him good to be away for a while. Make him appreciate home a little bit. He'll probably be back late tonight or first thing in the morning. But Paco did not come back late that night or in the morning. Well, by the end of the next day, the father's paternal instincts were kicking in and he got worried. Madrid's a big city. Where's my boy? Who's he with? Another night came and went, no Paco. Father's anxieties were increasing. So he went out and visited those places that Paco often frequented, asking around, have you seen Paco? No, nobody had seen him. Fourth day came, and by this time, father is desperate. And so he took out an ad in the largest newspaper in Madrid, and the ad said this, Dear Paco, meet me in front of the newspaper building tomorrow at noon. All is forgiven. I love you. Signed, Papa. The next day, at noon, in front of the newspaper building, 29 Pacos showed up longing to be reunited with fathers who were estranged. And in that huge group of Pacos, there was this one Paco that this particular father was looking for. This is a great homecoming story that touches our hearts, but I know a better one. The story of the prodigal son is regarded even by non-religious experts in literature as the greatest short story ever written. Only Jesus could have given us this parable so drenched with the dews of heaven. The story tugs at our hearts because all of us have a homecoming yearning in our souls. We long to meet the one who created us, to fulfill the purpose for which we were created, and to fill up the God-shaped hole in our souls. Because God deposited a heavenly gene in every soul, we long for homecoming with the heavenly father. We call this the story of the prodigal son. The word prodigal means one who spends money with wasteful extravagance. And the story can easily be divided into a four-act drama. And that's what I want to do this morning and see if you can identify yourself in one or more of these four acts. Act 1, verse 12. 
we find a teenage son who demands of his father, give me my share of the estate. Now, this teenage boy was the younger son of a wealthy farmer. And notice that this unhappy teenager, uh, that there's no mention of his mother in the story. And perhaps she may have died earlier. You know, in that era, it was not at all unusual for women to die in childbirth. Maybe that happened in this case. And if so, you can imagine that this father might have pampered the kid in an effort to make up for the lack of a nurturing mother in his life. You also know that spoiled children often become rebellious. The boy demanded of his father, give me what's coming to me when you die. This request just shows a, an incredibly arrogant disregard for the feelings of his father. He was saying to him, I want to live as if you're already dead. Well, the father gave him what he asked for. And he took off for the far country, which was the ancient equivalent of Las Vegas. He wanted to live in the fast lane for a while, under the bright lights. He wanted to run with the fast crowd. And at first, he made a whole lot of friends out there in the far country. Or at least he thought they were friends. No doubt that uh, there were some good time Charlies who would uh, help him gamble and drink and party as long as he was paying the bills. I don't doubt that there were some good time gals in the far country who would help him make it through the night if he was picking up the tap. That great theologian, Willie Nelson, has recorded a story about the folks in the far country. Their attitude was, if you've got the money, honey, I've got the time. But if you run out of money, I'll have no more time. Before long, the prodigal's money ran out. The economy slid into recession. Boy couldn't get a job anywhere in the far country. Couldn't pay his rent at the YMCA or wherever else he was staying. Couldn't even pay for a decent meal. Finally, he took a job doing what no self-respecting Jewish kid would ever do, slopping hogs. And he was so hungry, he was tempted to eat the pods that he was feeding to the pigs. And standing there, ankle deep in mud, he thought to himself, how in the world did I ever get into such a mess? You probably know that pig pens come in all shapes and sizes. You don't even have to have pigs around to have a pig pen. I've got a suspicion that a lot of country music was inspired by pig pens. I just got a feeling. I can't prove it. But surely Billy Ray Cyrus was speaking from a pig pen when he sang, I'm so lonesome without you. It's almost like having you here. Yes. And surely a pig pen inspired this one. If the jukebox took teardrops, I could dance all night long. Mercy, that's saying. <laughs> if you are in a mess and don't know the way out, you're in a pig pen. That's, that's the definition of a pig pen. If you're in a mess 
and don't know the way out. I've been in a number of them, and I suspect you have too. Years ago, my family was, re we were vacationing down at beautiful Litchfield Beach, and we were out on the beach, umbrella, deck chairs, soaking up the sun, having a good time. And there was a man nearby who struck up a conversation with me. And uh, he told me that he was an attorney from Tennessee. And in fact, he was a partner in one of the biggest law firms in the state of Tennessee. And also, as he talked, I could tell he was about half drunk. Well, when he found out I was a minister, he really began to talk. And I remember this statement he made. He said, I'm okay as long as I work. But when I have to go home or on vacation or be alone, I have to drink to survive. That man was in a pig pen, even with his six-figure salary. And my guess is, and surveys reveal, that approximately 10 to 15% of any typical congregation in America is composed of people who are in pig pens. And thanks be to God, he has a message for these dear folks. Let's move on to Act, Act 2, verse 17. When he came to his senses, when the prodigal son came to his senses, Jesus, the master storyteller, delivers an awesome truth in this one phrase, not even a complete sentence, when he came to his senses. Now think what these words mean. Jesus is saying that this teenage kid up to this point had not been thinking straight. He was spiritually deranged, distorted vision. But here in the pig pen, suddenly, suddenly his vision is clarified. He sees the world in reality as they really are. And instantly the boy says to himself, I don't belong here. I wasn't created for this. I should go to my father's house. And at this point, Jesus is paying all of us a huge compliment because what he's saying to all of us in this very sentence is this, when we are thinking straight, we are miserable in pig pens. And when we come to our senses, we long for our Heavenly Father's house. By the way, notice the supreme irony here. The boy had gone to the far country to experience freedom, independence. What did he get? Slavery, misery. Only in relationship with God through Christ do we become truly free. Jesus said it like this, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, you know, the boy could have gone home earlier. He didn't have to wait till he was hungry enough to eat pods. He was feeding the pigs. He could have gone home earlier. I know why he didn't. He knew that when he went home, he would have to say the most difficult words in any language. I was wrong. I'm sorry. I don't like to say that. And I suspect you don't either. 
But homecoming with God can never happen until we say that. That's what it means to repent. It means to say to God, just to tell it like it is, be honest, take off our mask, quit pretending, quit rationalizing, quit making excuses. In recent days, as I was preparing for this message today, the Holy Spirit sent a message to my heart, as he sometimes does. And he said, Brother Bill, there are going to be people listening to your message Sunday who are in pig pens and don't know how to get out. They're in messes and don't know the way out, and I want you to show them. And I said, Lord, I'll be happy to. Here is the way to be liberated from a pig pen. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and then invite Jesus into the middle of your mess. He will meet you there and lead you out of it. Act three is the decision made by the prodigal son in the pig pen. The boy decides to go home, and not only that, he decides what he's going to say to his father. I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be your son. Now, the decision about what to say to the old man was just as important as the decision to go home because let's suppose that he had gone home with a different message to his father. Let's suppose he had gone home and said, Dad, I've made some mistakes, wasted some money, but you know, I didn't have a mother to nurture me when I was young, and so that's, that's the reason. It's not all my fault. Or let's suppose that he had gone home and said to the old man, uh, yeah, I've made some mistakes, but it's partly your fault because you were always so busy with the farm. You never had quality time for me. Yeah, he could have said that. Or he could have said, hey, Dad, don't make a big deal about what I've done because most kids my age sow some wild oats. What I've done is not unusual. So let's not make a big deal about it. He could have. And if he had said any of those things, he would not truly have been home, even though his feet were firmly planted on the front porch. The glory of the boy's decision is his transparent honesty and his true repentance. What he says is so beautiful. No excuses, no rationalization, he, he, no, no deals. I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm not worthy to be your son anymore, but if you would be willing to hire me on as an employee, I would appreciate it. Now, God's great heart melts when any person comes to him with that kind of honest, genuine repentance. So, the boy decides to go home the right way. He had left home demanding, give me my share of the estate. He returns begging, just hire me on as an employee. He left home angry because life had not treated him well. He returns confessing, I have not behaved very well. I don't want justice. I want mercy. That brings us to the climatic act four of the drama. 
Now, can you imagine any more emotional freight than Jesus loaded into the half sentence in verse 20? While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. The old man had looked up that dusty road that the boy left on a hundred times, hoping to see him coming back. He left a lamp burning in the front room just in case the boy came back at night. The father had battled an urge to go to the far country and find the kid, grab him by the scruff of the neck and make him come home. But then the father's head said to his heart, That'd be no good. If the kid doesn't come home because he wants to, he wouldn't be home. And homecoming would be bogus. And so the old man just waited. And he paced. And he prayed. He had dark circles under his eyes because he couldn't have sleep. He had no appetite because his insides were torn up. And then one day he looked up that dusty road. And he saw somebody coming. And there was something about his gait or his stride or his bearing that looked familiar. But the father did not jump to conclusions. He had been fooled before. But he did step down off the front porch and start walking in that direction, squinting into the setting sun. And then he started walking a little faster. And then a little faster. And then he broke into a run as fast as his old arthritic knees would allow him. He ran all the way to the boy and enveloped him in his arms. And by that time, he was out of breath, so he couldn't say anything, but the boy said some beautiful words. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. By that time, the father's breath had returned, and he shouted to the servant who was trailing him, Quick, go get a robe for this boy, shoes for his feet, ring for his finger, and tell the cook to kill the fattened calf. We're going to have the biggest party this county ever saw because my boy is home again. Now, we call this the parable of the prodigal son, but it really ought to be called the parable of the loving, forgiving father. And I know why the the story touches every heart, because each of us has some prodigal in him or her. Each of us has strayed or is straying into some kind of far country or pig pen. And each of us feels in the very depths of our souls a divine pull, like a magnet, a spiritual magnet toward the Father's love. The pastor, James W. Moore, has entitled one of his books in an intriguing way. If God has a refrigerator, your picture is on it. Let me tell you about my first homecoming experience. I was about 12 years old, and my father was a pastor in upstate South Carolina. Now, somewhere I had picked up at that point some faulty theology. Didn't get it at home, didn't get it at church, do not know where it came from. But I believed that anything I'd did wrong before I was 12 years old was not my fault. It was my parents' fault. They should have trained me better. But I believed that on my 12th birthday, some angel in heaven was going to pull my ledger down 
my name across the front, and there are two columns, debits, credits. Every time I did something good, the mark would go here. Every time I did something bad, mark over here. And I believe that at the end of my life, they would total the two columns. And if I scored 70 or above on my lifetime morals test, I'd go to heaven. 69 or below, straight to hell. And you never got a midterm grade. So I never knew where I was. Now, I was not the worst kid in town, I felt like, uh, but I had told some lies. I had said some words you ought not to say. And there were some people I despised. But I kind of felt like that I would slide through on 70 to 75 long in there. That was my belief at that point. Now, my father believed in having, holding annual revivals, usually three or four nights, evening services, evangelistic services in his churches. And that particular spring, he had a revival going, and he invited me and my sister to attend. Now, the rule in our house was Sunday morning was mandatory, Sunday school in church. And if you said you were sick and couldn't go, you had to stay in your room all day. That discouraged lying. But everything else church-related was strictly voluntary. And so he invited us to go to this revival service, but it was not mandatory. I look back and wonder why I went. And we Methodists call it prevenient grace. We believe that God works in strange ways to pull us in his direction. We call it prevenient grace. Because I know there were, I, I had some homework to do. I had, there were probably some TV programs I could have watched. But I think prevenient grace pulled me to say yes. I also knew my friend Dan Smith would be there and we would sit on the back row and whisper about whatever 12-year-olds whisper about. The first surprise of that revival was the guest preacher. He was a college student. I didn't know anybody that young could preach. He was a student from Wofford College named Phil Jones. Today, Phil is a retired Methodist pastor living in Columbia. The second and the greater surprise was what Phil said in his sermon. It was like he had read my mind. He said, if you're expecting to get to heaven by scoring 70 or above on your morals test, you're in for a bad shock because 70 is not a passing grade with God. Neither is 80, neither is 90, neither is 99. And then he quoted Jesus saying, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Ooh, I felt lower than a whale's belly. I sort of slid down in the pew. I said, I'm in worse shape than I thought I was. And then Phil said, when God saw there was no way you could measure up to his standards, he loved you so much that he sent his son into this world. And at the age of 33, he voluntarily went to a cross to pay the penalty for your sin he was raised from the dead three days later, and God put out the best news the world has ever heard, that if anybody will just confess their sin, trust in this Jesus as Savior and Lord, then all sin, past, present, future is forgiven. Your place in heaven is reserved for you, and the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your heart and begins to make a new person out of you day by day. 
And then Phil said, if anybody wants to say yes to that offer, come on down to the front. Off I went, and a Dan Smith was with me. I knew something really big had happened. Later that night, riding home with my father and sister, I knew something huge had happened in my life, but I, I was not articulate enough as a 12-year-old to describe it. Oh, but now, 67 years later, looking back, I know, I know exactly what happened. I bumped into the grace of God and said yes to it. I experienced homecoming. Oh, how I wish I could say that I have not disappointed God since then. Oh, but I can't say it. Because I have disappointed him in thought, word, and deed. But he has never disappointed me. And each time I've strayed away, like a good shepherd, he has drawn me back into his fold. A few years ago, I experienced another kind of homecoming. It happened when we sold the old family home down in Andrews, South Carolina. After my mother died, none of us children needed that house. We all had homes and careers elsewhere, so we put it up for sale. And this, this large house was a wonderful structure. Uh, it was 100 years old and built with these great cypress beams and heart of pine flooring. Uh, I mean, ter termites didn't have a chance against this house. It, it had one of those great front porches that wrapped halfway around the house. It was just a great, great, great house. And after we put the house up for sale, I visited one last time, all by myself. The house was empty except for me. And I sat on a sofa in the living room and thought about that house. This was the very room where my grandfather's funeral was held. This was the very room where my father and mother were married. For two years, my mother and sister and I lived in that house while Papa was overseas in World War II. And as I sat there, I had an awesome feeling of homecoming. After all, this was the first house I could remember. But then the Lord conveyed a message to my heart. He said, yes, son, uh, this is a homecoming moment for you because this is the first house where you were loved and nurtured. But special as it is, this is just a prelude to the main event because a much greater homecoming is in your future, one that I have prepared for you. One day, by my grace, you will reach your final home. And there you will embrace your son and your parents who have gone before you. Dear church members and friends will surround you. And you're going to see Jesus face to face. And then on that great homecoming day, you're going to rejoice and shout in almost the same words from that old spiritual. Home at last. Home at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm home at last. Do you feel God calling you to a homecoming? Either for the first time or as a renewal? If so, you can respond today 
I'm going to give you that chance. I invite you now to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm going to pray a homecoming prayer, sentence by sentence, pausing briefly after each sentence. Just repeat after me silently. God will see you and hear you and welcome you home. Let us pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and need your forgiveness. I have strayed from you and have spent some time in pig pens. I believe that you died for my sins. I want to turn from my sin and become a new person. I now invite you to rule my heart and life. I trust in you as Savior and pledge to follow you as Lord. Amen.